Welcome to This is the Bad Place, a podcast about the NBC TV show The Good Place and the journey of two ex-evangelicals leaving white evangelicalism. Hello and welcome to This is the Bad Place, the podcast. Uh, Today we are talking about episode six. So, you know, halfway through this episode, we're exactly halfway through the season. Mm. of season one of The Good Place. So that's exciting. And this episode has a great title. Do you remember what it is, Crispin? Yes. What we owe to each other. What we owe each to each other. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I remember it because I'm reading it. What we owe to each other. It's just like such a good, like ethical, philosophical title, right? Yes. I'm into it. Yes. What do we owe each other? This is like a question that has plagued me. No yeah. pun intended, because this really came up during the COVID years. But you know what I'm saying? What we owe to each other. I'm the kind of person who spent my whole life thinking about that. Um, right. Because like growing up in evangelicalism, that's been very individual and self-serving to certain groups, right? Uh-huh. You were like, but what about marginalized people? But Which, what about everyone who's not just like us? And the weird thing about white evangelicalism is that they don't give a rat's ass about anyone who's not like them, yet they say they do all the time. And so growing up undiagnosed autistic in that world was very confusing. Um, and I ended up just sort of, uh, you know, being a cheaty and thinking about it all the time in my head. And, and I was thinking that. about that. At some point, cheaty says, you know, his brain is like having a fork in a in a, uh, in a a garbage disposal. Yeah, I think, is that... In this season or next season? At some point. But if you've been watching along, you already know that about him. Yeah. But I feel like that is, for you, that was the grinding sound. Is like you're saying that you care about everyone and God is love and like it does not match up. Yes. But we'll get into that more when we talk about the ethical questions of this episode. Um, f- for now, I just want to say Chidi is really f- funny and interesting in this episode. We'll get more to him. I love this episode because everyone's in it. We get a nice little, you know, lots of little subplots, lots of Michael being unhinged. Um, but for now, I think maybe we should just have Mark Evan Jackson do a little synopsis of this episode. And he plays a character that is not yet in this show, but is coming. And this is from The Good Place podcast the official one yeah i had to leave him leave in the part where he says his character because there's so such gravitas when he says it you'll see i play sean yeah no he does it better i'm mark evan jackson i play sean today we're discussing season one episode six what we owe to each other to recap michael enlists eleanor to help him investigate what's wrong with the neighborhood she tries to fulfill her promise of helping him while not actually helping him realize she's the problem he ultimately concludes that he is the problem Chidi agrees to third wheel a date between Tahani and Gianyu at a spa. He ends up Cyranoing Tahani to make her happy. So I feel like that was a very succinct synopsis. Okay, that was too short. Right, because you said like there are all these subplots, right? And basically he's just like, Eleanor helps Michael figure out what the problem is without it. And then also Chidi, Tahani, and Gianyu go on a couple's spa day yeah well chidi gets roped in to helping jason pretend that he's jianyu and connect with tahani yeah so that's one Mm -hmm. subplot and it's very funny and then the other one is yeah eleanor 
helping Michael because she said she would, and yet she's really also not trying to help him. But they kind of bond over the TV show Friends. <laughs> and that's something I really want to talk to you about, Crispin. <laughs> Why do you say that? Um, well, <laughs> We'll get into that in a minute, but first I want to talk about watch and rewatch. When you first watched this episode when it came out in 2016, what did you think of it, Crispin? So there is this aspect in this episode where the way that Eleanor can help Michael figure out what the problem in the neighborhood is, is to confess that she's the problem. And so then the question is like, well, if- wait a minute, is that really what we're thinking at this point? Yes. Uh huh. That's the whole thing is Michael's trying to figure out what's the problem in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. She's like, I know I'm the problem in the neighborhood. So how do I help him find out what the problem is without help without helping him figure out what the problem is? Yeah. Right. But I'm, I'm saying, does she feel this pressure to confess or not at all? I don't think she does. I think she has an ethical thought of like, that is the ethical thing to do, but I can't do that. Right. So what do I do instead? But I th- I think that there for me there's this question of like if Michael does find out if she does if Eleanor does confess is there any place for mercy in this place mm. I assume not yeah so I was thinking a lot about that when I first watched it because that really fit with my view of the afterlife at that time in 2016 which was kind of difficult to reckon with like is do people get a second chance yeah. you know okay so that was kind of my first watch how about for you yeah for me i think when i first watched this i was mostly just thinking about the character dynamics and chidi being the awkward third wheel is just really funny to me and Mm -hmm. i think that was something i thought about a lot i also the first watch when i didn't know about the twist michael discovering humanity was very funny to me and like all the things that make humans humans like paper clips wax lips uh-huh. um and frozen yogurt which we finally get to talk about frozen yogurt mm. i'm so excited um in this episode and arcade games yeah karaoke like it was just so funny to me because and the show friends all of it to me is like mediocrity human mediocrity and how interesting that is you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's kind of my sense huh. that I got watching it the first time around. Uh huh. What? Well, I don't know. What do you think about yeah, that element I, of Michael and what he's into as far as humans? Right. That's interesting because yeah, there is this element of like the joke sort of is like this isn't that great and humans are so into it. Yeah, but, frozen yogurt and karaoke mm-hmm. and bowling yeah, right. and he says, like, claw machines. He says this yeah. music plays, some pictures show up on the screen that have nothing to do with the song, yeah. some time passes, and it's over. It's great. Yeah, and he wins a minion uh-huh. stuffed <laughs> that toy. he calls an ugly toddler yes. with one eye. Yes, and I'm in like, Eleanor's like, it's a prize because the machine says it's a prize. <laughs> like, that's why it's a prize, you know? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> right. Just being the, being the parent of an eight-year-old who's really really into winning things from claw machines that really mm-hmm. stuck out to me <laughs> right yeah bowling which it just sort of points out like yeah and like the laser lights going at the bowling alley i was like i feel slightly happy and slightly depressed just watching this mm-hmm. you know is that what it means to be human 
I mean, that is a really interesting thing. He says, like, you are trying to, humans are trying to figure out how to have as much fun as possible, which... Is watching Friends really all that fun? Can we talk <laughs> about the friends of it all? Yes. Right it now. It was the only joy in my life during a difficult time. Yeah, tell me, know. tell me everything about your history with the show Friends. Yeah, so I was a missionary kid. Yes, you were. And little colonizer. Right. By the time I, I was I was along for the ride. I was like you I mean it wasn't your fault. I didn't make the choice. You did either. not ask to do that. You were unwillingly dragged yes. into mm-hmm. this. So there we exactly. go. Exactly. I was like, let's get deep into it. When my parents told us, I went into the bathroom and wept. Yeah. That's so okay. sad. Um, but I oh, will cut that part. No, don't cut that part. <laughs> don't. You dare. It's a very important backstory to your relationship with friends. Okay? Yes, that's true. <laughs> it's all. It's all. That is true. It's lore. That's what yes. the kids call it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, to to make a whole narrative of it when i was 12 my parents were like we're moving to china mm-hmm. i remember it was at dinner you're I, from southern oregon let's also put that uh-huh. in there a small uh-huh. like logging capital of the world at one point uh-huh. sort of small town mm-hmm. i remember thinking i'm gonna leave all my friends i'm gonna be really sad i i excused myself from the table and just went to the bathroom and cried for a while um and I went to China. I did have some friends for a couple of years, but by the time you're like 16 or 17 years old, so many parents would take their kids back to their country of origin because they want their kids to go to high school there or whatever. Um, so I ended up basically having no friends. Um, because your parents were pa- were not pastors, were principals of an international school. So that's right. your community. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, like, most of the other teenagers were taken back to their home countries. I didn't really have any friends left. Um, so every morning I would just wake up and watch probably, like, three episodes of Friends. And Friends were my friends. Yeah. And laugh and feel, you know, emotionally engaged and, you know, and I'm sure people that are listening, like, know, some of you probably know this, right? When you don't have a lot of social interaction and you watch a TV show because mm-hmm. it feels like social interaction. Yeah. So that is my association with friends. So you and Michael are similar. And right. you probably understood all the references Michael mm-hmm. made to friends yes. in this right. show. Should I, can I ask you right now, uh-huh. who are you? Are you a Ross? Oh, I'm a Ross. You're Rachel? I'm totally a Ross. You're Ross? Yes. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what any of this means. Who am I? You are a Phoebe. When, what? <laughs> yes. Interesting. Right. Okay. I've watched some Friends, as you know, mm-hmm. and I tried. This is my like lore. I was mm-hmm. homeschooled isolated and friends was like my dad preached sermons against friends Mm -hmm. and how many stds those people would have based on the amount of sex they had in that show you know so that's what Uh i was hearing right i mean i remember that was a thing of like younger generations starting to watch friends showing it to their parents Uh and their parents being like oh my god yeah they're so first of all everybody's extremely malnourished in that show Mm -hmm. there's so much fat phobia Mm -hmm. it's very homophobic Mm-hmm. transphobic like it's not funny mm-hmm. and i always thought that when i tried to watch it mm-hmm. so you and i have tried a little bit and i'm like Ugh, right yeah this you know so yes definitely <laughs> yeah like going back for a rewatch is like Ugh. so you you found other comfort shows i just thought it was funny to point that out now let's go to rewatch what mm-hmm. stood out to us 
as we are watching it now in 2023. So I cannot get out of my head this idea of Michael as the narcissistic pastor. Okay, (laughs) let's get into it. So just that aspect of he's so stressed out. The head architect, yeah. Right. He's pulling everybody else in. He's like, the stakes are so high. This has to work. Even this element of like, if I don't make you happy... Yeah. Then I'm a failure. Well, he said, I, my promise to you was to keep you safe and happy. Mm-hmm. And right. If I'm failing at that, like, I'm in big trouble. Exactly. So the implicit message there is feel safe and happy. Right? Um, I think. Anyway, but yeah, just, just the stress that he brings out in everyone, in himself. Um, but the other thing that really stood out to me is um, this... This idea of soulmates is a big theme here. There's a couple of points where this comes up. Mm -hmm. One is to Hani and Janyu going to the spa, right? And Chidi being the third wheel and kind of this like, no, but couples are two people, not three people. So there's this idea of like, this is the way it should be. It should feel good, but it's not working out, right? And they're supposed to be soulmates. Um, And what's interesting too is at one point, Chidi and Tahani sit down as though they are soulmates at this cafe and they're bonding. And so there's this like clear aspect where like who the people that are supposed to be soulmates are not soulmates, but in the system it's saying it's supposed to be this way. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was just really struck by that. Like everyone's in this system where it's like, we've determined what the best way is and this is just what it is. And you don't have a say in it. Everyone's relationships end up forked up. Oh, you're you're so good at doing the fake uh, swearing. Okay, so my personal belief is that all this stuff about relationships and soulmates is just a big smokescreen to keep people distracted from what's actually going on in the show. And because, like, if those elements were taken out, you you might just get too stressed or too uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with what's going on with Michael and Mm -hmm. Eleanor. So I'm like, and it's also like in a way making fun of compulsory like sexuality and Mm -hmm. that having to be a part of the good place and the pressures and all that Uh, shout out to a book I have just started reading, which is all about compulsory sexuality. And um, I think everybody should read it. Let me try and, Oh, here we go. It's by Sharonda J Brown and it's called refusing compulsory sexuality, a black asexual lens on our sex obsessed culture. So I am starting to read that book, which made me kind of think about this uh, soulmate third wheel plot line a little bit differently. And I, I think that's interesting to me. I will say rewatching it, Chidi being so awkward and so like, easily pressured to do something if somebody tells him it's the ethical thing to do mm-hmm. it's very autistic coded to me just mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. autistic coded like him awkwardly trying to help but just doing it so badly and um, <laughs> like at one point he's giving john you jason a massage but he's just tapping his fingers yes. on jason's like well, back well and so 
Jason is like, Chidi, you have to come to this spa day thing with me and Tahani because I can't do it. And Chidi's like, I don't want to do it. But then he like talks himself into it by being like, uh oh, Tahani is actually in the same awful situation I'm in, right? Where mm-hmm. she's paired with someone who's not actually her soulmate, but she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. So is that worse than me or is it not? And he says, is ignorance bliss or will the painful truth actually be healing? And I was like, oh my God, that's my brain <laughs> i'm always wondering like uh-huh. is ignorance bliss or is like is it actually more healing to tell people the truth as you mm-hmm. see it or mm-hmm. even to uh try and find the truth even mm-hmm. if it might be painful right. um where do you think i fall on that <laughs> spectrum spectrum chris yes on the far end of the truth the, the painful truth is healing uh-huh. okay where do you think you fall I because in this instance, Chidi is like ignorance might be bliss, so mm-hmm. he tries that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it just really depends on the different scenarios. Yeah, but I do think that there's this element of facing the truth um, that is really important. And I think about even this, like the whole idea, the whole scheme here is for John you to pretend like he's John you and not Jason. Yeah. Right. And like how harmful that is and how that really gets in the way of them figuring out what their relationship is. Yeah, they're a both real hoping, relationship. Yeah. right. They're both hoping to be, at least she's hoping for a soulmate, but without that information, they can't figure out what this relationship is. Yeah. Um, it's funny because you don't see a lot of like Jason and how he feels about Tahani, except one line, which I loved so much on this rewatch. Yes. <laughs> which he's just like, Tahani is like as beautiful and smart and well spoken as Nala from The Lion King. And that just so stood out yes. to me. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have like a crush on a Disney character? On like a animal? A- or, I mean, answer? it could be any, but yes. Oh, gosh. I don't. No, probably I mean, all of them. I mean, obviously for me, I was obsessed with Robin Hood. Mm, and I still mm-hmm. am. Steal from the rich and give it to the poor. Uh-huh. He's a fox, too. He's mm-hmm. cute. Um, but yeah, so I just thought that was such a, a such a funny little tidbit. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, you asked that question, like, who did I have a crush on? Yeah. It was like any love story in any movie I heavily identified with. I was such a, like romantic romantic guy Mm -hmm. that's true yeah okay well is any other favorite things about this episode you want to you know put in here right now um i love that um at one point michael gets excited because he's figured out uh who might be the problem in the neighborhood and he gets so excited he pours paper clips over eleanor's head and I just thought it was really funny because that's like this subtle form of torture. Like, Paper clips on the head? Yes. You can tell she's so annoyed. Yeah. And out of all the things, it just like, it just captures this moment of her being like, I'm in trouble. And also someone is pouring paper clips over my head maybe just as a sensory sensitive person i'm like that sounds like torture but oh i know paper clips give me a, like a shiver mm-hmm. when i think about them um okay my i think one of my favorite things is michael's like depression hoodie i really mm-hmm. identify with the depression hoodie i have a gray hoodie and i put the hood up but yeah you know just yeah. I and i love that it. he says i'm giving up like they gave up in season eight of friends <laughs> when they were all out of ideas <laughs> And they, for no reason, put Joey and Rachel together. How did you feel about the Joey and Rachel plotline as a kid? 
Yeah, it was weird. It was very weird. Yeah. And, you know, you're out of all the friends, you're rooting for Ross. So it feels weird to, like, root for one friend against another. Yeah, it's so true. You know, it was just hard in my in my friend group at that time. <laughs> you know, there was so much drama going on with all my friends. Yes. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. So another of my favorite things about this episode is just how this show is trying to take these big picture ethical and, like, moral philosophy questions and cram them into this little comedy. So, I mean, this is kind of going to be a nice segue into this is the bad place mm-hmm. uh, where we talk about growing up in evangelicalism and what stood out to us. Okay. So this episode is titled after an actual book by an actual person named T.M. Scanlon. And he wrote a book called What We Owe to Each Other. And... I love how Chidi is trying to explain contractualism to Eleanor in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. If two people agree, like, this is what is going to be good for both of us, like, you need to uphold that contract, and then you are being good, right? And Eleanor's, and he kind of makes it in, like, a democracy way, right? And then we all vote on what's good, and then we all uphold those good. And then Eleanor's like, well, I'll just pass a vote so everybody has to do what I think is good, and Chidi's like, that's tyranny. Like, <laughs> and it's generally frowned upon. It's generally frowned. So I'm like, yay! This is my special interest: uh-huh. democracy versus tyranny or authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. It's like right here. And Eleanor is so quick to point out the flaws. I believe in these abstract, you know, moral philosophy questions. What do we owe each other? It's like, well, how can you even have these conversations if one person is rigging it? So that only certain votes matter and only Mm -hmm. certain people's ideas of what is good and what we're all upholding matter. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And so I think this show is so clever and so smart and it's setting that up in this tiny little exchange at the beginning, Mm -hmm. right? What is democracy versus what is tyranny? So that's what I think this is about. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I really... um thought about this idea of promises because that comes up over and over, over again, right? And over again. It's like being a good person is keeping your promises. And I was thinking about how uh, toxic, unhealthy systems exploit the idea of yes, promises. thank you. That's and what I want to talk about. Right. And so I know you want to talk about it politically, uh-huh. but I want to, is it okay if we start with it in like a granular, like family or friend yeah, level? Well, and also to point out, I, the show does both of that. So it, it flashes back to this example of Eleanor agreeing to dog sit for a dog. And so like, that's the personal. For a friend. For a friend. Yes. Okay. <laughs> she didn't agree to the dog. <laughs> And, you know, hilarity ensues when she goes back on her, you know, her word. So I think the show has that, like, personal lens, but then it also has the systematic when we're looking at Michael and Mm -hmm. and things with Eleanor. But before we do that, I'm just going to – I'm going to actually – read something about what contractualism is, and that's T.M. Scanlon's What Do We Owe Each Other? This is all coming from contractualism. It says, contractualism appeals to the idea of a social contract. It attempts to derive the content of morality, and in some versions, the justification for holding that we are obligated to follow morality from the notion of an agreement between all those in the moral domain. So that's it. We all agree, right, Mm -hmm. to this is what is best for everybody, and we all uphold that social contract 
gift. Mm-hmm. And that is what makes you a good person in whatever society you're in. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're talking about here. Right. Okay, yeah. now you, you know. Yeah. So I mean I, I talk to my clients about this a lot, about this idea of basically like you don't have to keep your promises. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds weird to say, but what I mean is um if if you grew up in a uh, a family system where you just automatically agree to things, right? You automatically submit or you automatically are like, yeah, I'll do that, right? It is okay to come back to someone later and say, hey, actually, I was thinking about it and this doesn't fit for me. Like, I can't help you move on Saturday, right? You need to communicate that. You need to like be clear. But I think a lot of um, ways that power is wielded is people will say, well, you said this. You said you were going to do this or you said you're going to do that. And I think this even goes back to the soulmate thing, right? Because it's like, because I agreed to this at some point in my life, maybe when I was under the pressure of someone, then I have to live it out the rest of my life. You Mm -hmm. know, I think that it really brings up that question. And I think you're going to kind of get at this, but like when we make these agreements under the pressures of an oppressive system, right, then it's sort of like, okay, well, you figured out that this system is oppressive or doesn't work, but you said you were going to do it. So you need to keep following it through. Exactly. And I think that's the thing that's just so sticks out to me. And it seems like Eleanor, right, has this also intrinsically. It's like, right, but... This whole thing of we all uphold this idea of a social contract. We all commit to it. It's like, but what if there are bad faith actors in power? Right. And what if we as individuals did not have any say in what that social contract was? What if it was set up centuries ago? Right. I mean, exactly. And so I think this show is trying to get people to think through some of these things. And for us growing up in white evangelicalism, it's really sobering to be like, oh, I actually was pressured into making a social contract, like an explicit one Mm -hmm. um, at a really vulnerable time in my life. And Mm -hmm. then the pressure to uphold that is enormous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is like, For me, this is getting into, like, you might have religious trauma if territory. Uh But I just want to say, like, I was six years old, right? And I was the Mm -hmm. child of a pastor. And my mom was obsessed with God, too. And so I can remember just being told about God and God sending Jesus to die for my sins and how I owed God, like my entire life, like the gift of life for one, but Mm -hmm. then I owed God my actual life and not Mm. just my life and what I did with my life, but my every thought, my every action, every book I read, how I wouldn't watch friends. You know what I mean? Like Uh I owed God everything. How, How much did you hear that sentiment that you owed God everything? Oh yeah. All the time. Right. And which was why it was like, I need to spend every second. Like, I, you know, we talked in one of our Patreon-only episodes, we talked about my online magazine when I was a teenager. And I talked about, like, if you play sports, like, you're not taking Jesus seriously enough because you should be spending every moment of your life evangelizing or worshiping God. Yeah. And I don't know how people who didn't grow up in a cult, like white evangelicalism, like, I don't know if it's as explicit, this you do owe everything to Mm -hmm. this deity. And in order to be good in this 
social construct, you have to prove over and over again, right? That you are serving this God, you are honoring this God, you never change. And that's the thing. I was six when my mom finally sat me down and was like, do you want to get baptized? Do you want to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ and live the rest of your life for Jesus? Do you believe this is true? Mm -hmm. And as a six-year-old, you're like, yeah, I guess it's true because you're telling me and you're my parent and this seems incredibly important to you. And you're telling me the stakes are if I'm going to go be in heaven with you when I die Mm -hmm. or go to hell. And so, yes, I believe. And I believe you're right. I believe this is good news. I believe it's a really good thing for me to dedicate the rest of my life to God. And so I was baptized when I was six. Both my parents were so pleased and so proud of me. And then that moment was held up the rest of my life to be like, see, you're a Christian. You chose mm-hmm. this. You dedicate your life to God. And that was used to pressure me into be- becoming a missionary, devoting everything to God. And it was also used to pressure me if I ever had any doubts at all about this religion. It's like, no, mm-hmm. you're a Christian. Like, this is what we believe. This is what we do. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Well, I think this comes up a lot in religious communities where people say, you are changing. And that means you are not an ethical person, right? So like you used to, you know, whether it's like you used to read the Bible this way, right? Or you used to hold these values or you used to live your life this way and now you're changing. And I think outside of this framework, we can say like, yeah, that's because people grow and they change and they develop, right? But in this contractualism where things are set up beforehand, it's like, no, like you are doing something wrong because you are in a sense like breaking a promise. Yeah. Do you have like a good experience like to illustrate that and that kind of pressure you experience maybe? So in the flashback, we see that Eleanor makes a promise and then she breaks that promise because it is easier for her. It's inconvenient for her to to stay and watch the dog, right? And we would all say, like, that is selfish, that is immoral, that's yeah. unethical. But this same approach gets um, gets put on people that are leaving their faith community, for example, right? You just care about what's convenient for you. You're selfish. You're just thinking yeah. of yourself. And it's like you're breaking the contract of, yeah. like, you, you, we've all agreed that we have to serve God with our lives or we have to obey God or whatever. And by you thinking about yourself and what you want your life to look like and like taking on autonomy as an adult in a healthy way is what I would say. You are breaking the contract that we have all agreed to. And I'm mad at you. This is threatening. I think this also comes up in families, right? Like I gave birth to you. I... I took care of you for 18 years, so you need to, you know, meet my needs. I mean, in unhealthy yeah. families, yeah. right? Like, yeah. this is a contract that you could could not – this is a contract you had no choice in. Yeah. But the assumption is, like, we're all under the same terms here, and you're breaking the contract because you're selfish, because you're just thinking of yourself, et cetera. Yeah, and so for us, being parents of a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old, we've really experienced – Oh, we are parenting in such a different way. The mm-hmm. contract has to be negotiated by all parties mm-hmm. for it to be actually something people can um, actually commit to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's coercion. Right. Right. Uh-huh. And and so since we're committed to not coercing our kids, like things have to be renegotiated mm-hmm. um, all the time. And I think that leads to healthier families. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, you know, right. it's like permissive willy-nilly-ness mm-hmm. over here, but we actually talk through things and, and we change things as they're needed. I mean, another 
example that came to mind is right purity culture and purity mm-hmm. rings. So when I was 13, I got a purity ring from the Christian bookstore. Mm-hmm. My dad gave it to me, you know, and I was supposed to wear that until I got married to a man and then had sex for the first time with that man. Then I could take, you know, I'd have a wedding ring. And right? that man is me. <laughs> Do you remember if I was still wearing it? No. Because I, I was uh-uh. definitely pure. Oh, my yes. God. I, again, I'm somebody who followed this to a T. Uh-huh. I'm, I was cheaty all the way. This is the social contract I was born into. But again... I mean, purity culture works really well for demisexual people, I think. And autistic people. Yes. But think about if you're not demisexual. Think about if you're not... Like, this is a social contract put on you by patriarchal men mm-hmm. and like my parents would be like you wanted the ring mm-hmm. you, you maybe you even asked for it. i'm like yeah because everyone was doing it that's what i was pressured to it would make you happy right. you told me this was from god so mm-hmm. yes i believed it you know and just thinking like that these social contracts and contractualism can be so exploited mm-hmm. by people with power and it just makes me so upset when like moral philosophy doesn't seem to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the couple therapist in me thinks about this part because I run into a lot of couples that are like, we recognize that even getting married is not a guarantee that we're going to stay together forever. Yeah. What do you do when you can't say, yes, I promise I will stay with you forever. Cause we just know that that's not, you know, the reality that we can guarantee that. And then they have to go through this process that I think is a really healthy process of saying like, yeah, we need to communicate honestly with each other day by day about where things are at and like address problems. We can't just lean back on like, well, this is the structure. So we just need to push forward, which I think hits on that soulmates theme in this episode of right. We're soulmates. So we can't like pretend like anything's wrong. Well, here's the other thing. What Chidi and Tahani and Jason and Eleanor are all experiencing, even with this issue of soulmates, is tyranny, mm-hmm. right? One man with all the power, Michael, right, has assigned people and they just have to trust him that they he got it right. And because he's like Ted dancing in a bow tie, they mm-hmm. do. And then it causes so much pain for mm-hmm. everyone like there's no consent you know what i mean but they're just right. shoved into this social co- and everyone around them is acting and pretending like it works mm-hmm. so then they're like okay i have to do this mm-hmm. right yeah and i think so much for, about Jianyu, jason where he's like i have to just literally not be myself in order for like, this shut to work up and mm-hmm. survive mm-hmm. which a lot of people do right mm-hmm. yeah i'm like i recognize this is a tender topic uh-huh. but i think it is you know in terms of this like when you get married under this under this idea of like this is you know especially if you oh, so, grew up so white evangelicals right yes if you get married you're married for life right no and you are making a leaves pro- you're making a promise to that third strand which is god to god right in your community that's why you uh-huh. need to get married in a church in front of everybody you know right yeah exactly and so then for for some some part like it and it plays out in different ways right sometimes it's like okay well we're married so like we don't have to talk about our relationship we just like are gonna you know we'll just stay there forever which doesn't usually work for the partner that has complaints about the relationship yes. you know yeah. it is it is tyranny it's like the autonomy is taking out like this is your role you need to fulfill your role for the rest of your life and again we are often assigned these roles 
when we're very young and very impressionable. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And so <laughs> it's a big deal. I'm feeling overwhelmed just as we're yeah. talking about it. I mean, I, let's let's just be clear. We're working on a project right now about evangelical parenting and thinking a lot about what are the long-term impacts and what are the ways that growing up uh, evangelical um, sets your life on a path that it feels like you don't have autonomy even when you get into your 30s and, and 40s. And a huge theme that emerges is people being pressured into marriages at a very young age mm-hmm. and it being such a huge source of strife and shame and then you have kids in the mix like it's really complicated so Mm -hmm. uh, that is a huge issue for people who grew up in high control environments and authoritarian movements which which we believe white evangelicalism is so that's my like you might have religious trauma if you agreed to uphold these social (laughs) contracts you know to please your parents the actual people who are supposed to be in charge of taking care of you that you're biologically predispositioned to believe are good and will take like you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. The levels of coercion are just wild. But what? Mm-hmm. How would you say it? You might have religious trauma if you feel like you're walking around all the time, like you have to confess something, but you don't want to confess it because it's going to have negative consequences and you're not going to belong anymore in the place, which is the place that Eleanor okay. is at. So even though like emotionally she's very like self-protective, like I don't think she has a guilty conscience about it, but she sort of knows like in order for me to be a good person, I should be telling Michael that I'm the problem, but I don't want to do that because I don't want to be excluded. Yeah. So Okay. Okay. It's time for DL's fun facts. Okay. So a weird subplot in this episode is impressionist painters and impressionist paintings, which I actually love. I love the impressionists. Um, Van Gogh is my boy. Okay. Um, but they talk about Edgar Degas, uh, and like the ballerina paintings and that's a whole subplot. Well, my fun fact is Edgar Degas is in the bad place because he was a raging misogynist who was obsessed with watching young girls in physical pain at the Paris ballet. And he described himself as a voyeur, right? And he called them his little dancing monkeys. And he also said, I I mean, women don't like me because I view them as animals. Also, he was horribly anti-Semitic. He's in the bad place. I just want to put that out there. Okay, another fun fact. But just FYI. What? If, if you ever... If you ever care about art, oh. music, movies, don't let DL do any research. People get to decide how they want to feel about these beautiful ballerina paintings mm-hmm. after they know the history. Um, anywho, that's, that's, that's one thing. Okay, so another fun fact is that... The Crimson Review, which is like a Harvard publication, they reached out to T.M. Scanlon and interviewed him about how he felt about his book being referenced on The Good Place because he's still alive. Okay, And so I thought that was awesome. And he was like, they did a good job. And basically they found out about his book because he taught this really brilliant woman who became an advisor to it then of course Mike sure read his whole book and he's like yeah he basically got it really right. He's like I felt nervous you know watching it almost like I was a parent at like a school recital and you're like, is this going to be embarrassing or is this going to be great or, you know, mm-hmm. and that, I thought this was really cute what he said. 
They said, like, is there a character you identify with in the show? He said, well, how can I identify with any character other than Chidi? Actor Will William Jackson Harper gets a lot of credit for this. He really captures a certain kind of academic character. Indecisive, concerned to sweat the details in a way that other people don't even bother with, and a certain kind of earnestness. He really gets it. I just hope that being like that isn't going to be made too much fun of. I just thought that was like the sweetest little like response. Uh And I don't think they make fun of Chidi. Mm -hmm. I think they actually highlight his his anguish and how inwardly, you know, tormented he is in Mm -hmm. some ways. But he's also a a beautiful, earnest, smart, you know. He's very likable. He's very likable. I just thought that was like so cute that T.M. Scanlon is watching the show, like loves it. Um. Another one of my favorite fun facts is that I couldn't keep up with all the mentions of celebrities in this episode because there's so many. But my favorite one is probably Jason when Tahani is asking him, like, do you like any impressionists or like any art? And he's like, well, Pitbull changed the game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Another fun fact is I just noticed two stores in one of the scenes and the titles. One was called All Chocolate Everything and the other was called All the Books. And I was like, damn that sounds amazing i, I like, like to the go... spa was called the good face the spa, spa. <laughs> and then jason he get he at first he wants to give to honey this like painting of a famous impressionist by which he means a comedian who does impressions, impressions. frank caliando who is a real person who does real impressions that I had never heard of, but I guess he's famous. I was like, his name sounds familiar, but I don't know if that's because I've watched The Good Place before. I don't know. I loved all that. Yeah. It was, there's a lot of fun parts in this episode amidst all the anguish. Uh-huh. Speaking of the anguish, uh-huh. uh, we have a listener question. Oh. So we heard from Christiana, and um, she talked about relating to Chidi mm-hmm. because of Chidi having to face this idea of like his life's work was in vain. Um, and she grew up a missionary kid and reflecting on her parents and how much they sacrificed and then coming to this conclusion that hell isn't real or hell wasn't what her parents mm-hmm. thought it was. Mm-hmm. And then the grief that comes with like, I grew up in this. I gave so much. My parents gave so much. And it's really hard to f- to make this ideological change because it, mm-hmm. like, what does it mean for all the sacrifice they put in? And, um, and so she talks a little bit about that. If there's no danger of hell, then my parents' life work was a bit in vain. Makes so much sense of why it is so hard for people to leave this framework if it calls your life's work into question. So I'm feeling very, very sad while I'm watching this show, but in a way that makes me feel tender and broken open to the world in the words of Mary Oliver. So thank you so much for reminding us all about this and for encouraging your rewatch. And I'm so excited to keep listening along. Thank you both for everything you do. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind immediately is Michael in this episode, they're talking about frozen yogurt. I finally get to go on my frozen yogurt rant right now. You ready, Crispin? Mm-hmm. Michael is talking about frozen yogurt, and he said, because Eleanor's like, have you ever had ice cream? Like, why is there so much frozen yogurt? And he's like, there's something so human about taking something great and ruining it so you can have more of it. And I was like, oh, that's 
Christianity in a way. I'm not saying it is great at its core. At the same time, there's there's no doubt that uh, the person of Jesus has shaped history in so many ways, like teachings, but also the whole kit and caboodle, right, of an, of an organized religion. And I just think, like, <laughs> that is what missionaries do, right? They ruin it so they can have more of it. Like, the whole point is to get more people to tithe to your church, to vote people who are, um, you know, wanting to privilege and prioritize you into well, office. Like, right. I mean, I keep on thinking about this because the idea of heaven is a pretty sweet idea to go with the ice cream metaphor. Wow. Right? Like, yeah, like we will be together again. Like there's an end to suffering, right? And then evangelicalism takes that idea of an afterlife and makes it slightly sour or very it's sour. very sour. Right? It's disgusting. Uh-huh. Just like frozen yogurt and uses this... You know, comforting idea to really scare people and gain power in the world. Yeah, and it's funny. The frozen yogurt of it all, I didn't even think about this, but Michael's basically saying probably in the concept of, like, diet culture, right? Like, mm-hmm. ice cream's great, but if, you know, I, I don't a TCBY was a big deal to my mom in the <laughs> 90s, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Like, and she was really into diet culture, so I'm assuming there was some sort of marketing around frozen yogurt is better for you, it's healthier, it's not as, quote-unquote, bad for you as ice cream, and you can eat more of it, which is like, well, why do you want to eat more of something that's sour? <laughs> like, if you want frozen yogurt, great, have a little bit of it. But, mm-hmm, you know, right. not to eat that instead of ice cream because you don't want to be fat. Like, that is probably accurate, probably true. Um, so there's many angles this this frozen yogurt can get to, but I think the frozen yogurt overall is this this idea like pay attention to your intuition in these situations where you've been born into social contracts. If you've been born into one as a white person, if you've been born into one as an American, if you've been born into one as an evangelical Christian, like notice born into one as a man, yeah, but or a woman, like and notice what is sour, okay. And what sourness have you just had to deal with and swallow in order to like keep going and to uphold these contracts that you didn't actually make? Mm-hmm. And at, guess what? We're human fucking beings and we get to renegotiate these contracts at any moment. We really do. Even, I love this, God bless it, gender, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like a really exciting time to be alive. And yet the people who created these social contracts that we were born into are really upset at people developing autonomy and doing just that. Mm-hmm. Um, they want us to just eat the frozen yogurt and think it's amazing. So I'm pretty sure people have bingo cards at this point of like, TL is going to talk about fascism, trans rights. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Before we I move on. I did say fascism. I only talked about tyranny and authoritarianism. Because uh-huh, I'm so cool and I'm so moderate. Yes. And, yeah, exactly. So before we move on from this listener question, I just want to say thanks to Christiana for sharing that because I think it just really names something, which is there is a lot of grief and sadness that comes mm-hmm. with leaving an ideology that you have de- dedicated a religion, a faith community, whatever or that it is. your parents 
keep telling you they sacrificed everything for. Right. Yeah. And also probably a lot of people have given a lot of themselves to this as well. And so I, I mean, think we certainly have. Right. Exactly. So I just really appreciate acknowledging that grief that comes up. So yeah, totally. it's really great. Okay. Well, now let's, we get to end on a nice note. Let's talk about, this is the good place. What are, what are some things that are giving us hope in humanity these days? Do you want to go first? You should go first. I should go first? Okay. Well, I... It's funny that you mentioned that. Trans people <laughs> give me hope for humanity. As, oh, my God. Am I predictable, Christian? Do you think I'm predictable? I kind of am. Okay. So, I'm really into this podcast called Joe's Boys, which talks about um, Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, and just basically the history of Lou Alcott, as they like to be known. Um you know, and just a lot of trans joy in rereading uh, Little Women. So that's awesome. And then I just bought this book that is definitely not helping hope in humanity in some ways, but in other ways it is. It's called, oh, what is it called? Hell Followed With Us. And it's by Andrew Joseph White, who is a trans man who um, definitely seems to have a relationship or was born into white evangelicalism where, you know, currently trans youth in particular, right, are seen as like the biggest evil and the biggest menace to society. So this book I saw at our local bookstore, which our local bookstore also gives me hope in humanity. Um, it was basically like, do you need to let out some rage like at all the transphobia legislation happening? Then read this book. And I was like, sold. And so it is helping, but I just think the author's really cool. And he gives me hope for humanity. So I... I Encourage people to find trans authors, trans content creators. Um, they're so awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, what's giving me hope in humanity right now is Gen Z setting boundaries. Oh. I just, over the last couple of weeks, have heard various stories of people that um, have raised their kids to like set boundaries and have some autonomy and like setting that with boomer grandparents. Yeah. So good job us. Good job millennials. For facilitating. For facilitating this. It gives me hope in humanity that many of us are raising kids that have a sense of boundaries and a sense of autonomy, um, which is really beautiful. It's very cool. Yeah. And their boundaries are things like, oh, we believe in human rights for all. And we actually think we should hold corporations accountable for climate change like you know yeah just little things, things. Mm -hmm. right i'm so excited about next episode yeah because it's gonna bring up some like hell yes okay so we've had so many listener questions about hell which we love so we'll probably play a few next week well here's the thing i think that the next episode talks a lot about like scapegoat Oh, okay. Sort of stuff and like, you know, punishment. But we have such a backlog of hell voicemails uh -huh. that we're going to do our next spoiler episode, which isn't a spoiler episode Patreon anymore. Patreon only episode. Our next, we're going to do our next Patreon only episode with about a lot of these voicemails hell, about the concept hell. of the bad place. And we're just going to get into it. Mm -hmm. So that's great. If you're listening, please send us any of your question, comments, concerns. You can leave a voicemail or you can email us, uh, DM us on our Instagram account. But All we, those details are in the show notes. You yeah. can find them easily. Yeah, we and we love listening to y'all. Um, and if you really want to rush in and get one in about hell, do it now. Because we're going to be doing that for our patrons next. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Take it sleazy.
This has been an episode of This is the Bad Place, a special season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram by searching Prophetic Imagination Station Podcast. You can find us on the web at propheticimaginationstation.com. You can leave us a voicemail at 503-912-4130 or record a voice memo and send it to propheticimaginationstation at gmail.com. Join our Patreon community to hear two extra episodes a month and join our Facebook group to discuss episodes and more. And we hope you'll join us next time in the bad place. <laughs>